All right, as we begin this morning uh, from the Word, uh, I'm starting out in Luke chapter 19, uh, which is really where the Palm Sunday experience, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem began, and it ushered in an entire week of uh, extremely um, difficult days for the Lord Jesus. Um, the first part of chapter 19 talks about the wonderful experience with uh, uh, the uh, Zac- uh, uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and, and, and the declaration that today salvation had come to his house because uh, uh, he also is a descendant, the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And so Jesus at this point reaches out to someone who's a very despised person in the in a nation. Why? Because tax collectors never have been popular. Uh, a good friend of mine worked for the uh, Revenue Canada in Winnipeg at, at, at their head office there, and he had at one point been a pastor and a fellow Bible school student with me. And whenever I would meet him, you know, I, I would be tempted to call him Zacchaeus. Uh, but, 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 you know, they're just not very popular, but it was especially unpopular in a culture where Israel was under siege and was actually an occupied territory by the government of Rome. And so the taxes uh, didn't, didn't just go to Ottawa, they, they actually went to Rome. And that was, that was even more difficult. So as we begin this, let's just pause in a word of prayer this morning. Father God, as we look at what Palm Sunday represents in the, in the Christian calendar, and all the activities that took place in rapid succession during that week, moving towards the ultimate, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Father, we recognize that that is an extremely important historical uh, crossroads for the Christian faith. And not what happened so much on the actual uh, Palm Sunday, but what happened just one week later, just within days later, uh, is, is what really is at the very heart of our faith. And, and as much as we rejoice in the fact that uh, we, we have a beautifully decorated sanctuary this morning pointing us to the special occasion that we're celebrating, at the same time, Father, we know that within our hearts, there is that connection with the death of Jesus, which brought us eternal life. So, Father, open my heart and open our hearts and minds to your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was saying in, in beginning, the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which begins in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, uh, is uh, really uh, highly symbolic because it was well prepared, it was carefully staged, and this ride into the city of Jerusalem was really the prince of peace taking possession of his own. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of symbolism here, uh, but part of that should not escape us. The fact that normally when a Roman governor or a, a uh, king in, in, in the ancient world surrounding Israel would ride into the city. They typically would be on a war horse, on a steed, usually a white horse, 
that distinguished itself. And these were, you know, highly trained and, and, and agile and prancing horses, and, and it, it, it all spelled power and, and authority. In total contrast, Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, uh, that no one had ever ridden before. It, it, it is a symbol of the humility of the fact that he is a different kind of king. He is the prince of peace. He's the one who, who gives himself rather than takes from people. And uh, uh, yet, as soon as he gets into the city, the next episode that we read uh, in, in, in verses 45 to 48 is Jesus in a totally uncharacteristic role because he cleanses the temple. Here we find him uh, doing some unexpected action. Uh, Jesus, who was considered to be meek and mild, who was the gentle Savior, all of a sudden exhibits a, a righteous anger as he goes in and kicks over the, the money changer's table and as he drives people out uh, with, with the anger saying, uh, you have made a house of prayer into a den of thieves. Now, truth is that uh, when people would come from all over the area, uh, from various countries to worship in Jerusalem, especially during the Passover season, and, and, and this was a special time for the Jewish nation, um, they would bring their own currency uh, and they would have to exchange that for temple currency with which they would then purchase the sacrificial animals or whatever uh, offerings they would want to give. They had to be given in, in, in temple currency, which was a great opportunity for some people to set up booths and to exchange the money, but you know, always taking some additional interest. Uh, you know, almost every week I get something in, on, on email or in, over the internet saying, if you want to have American currency, here is how you can get it cheaper for, than from your own bank. Because the exchange rate that you're getting uh, is not always what the actual exchange rate is that's listed on the internet. And, and th this was the same kind of thing. It was a, a, an opportunity for people to make money off these weary travelers who'd come miles to worship uh, in, in the temple, and then only to find that they're being cheated out of their money in order to get enough temple coins so that they can uh, offer whatever offerings they had intended to give. And so Jesus' anger is against the abuse of something, the system that surrounded temple worship that was not appropriate uh, for what, in fact, uh, should have happened in terms of prayer and in terms of worship of, of Almighty God. And then immediately after that, in chapter 20, as you move through those chapters quickly, you find that uh, uh, Jesus' authority is questioned. Here he is, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. He is, here is uh, the, the ultimate, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God who has come into this world. We celebrate his incarnation as being one of the uh, e events uh, that, that are significant in, in terms of human history. And yet, they were asking him questions and, and uh, discounting his answers. Uh, in fact, in wake of the action in the temple, and also on the basis of some of the miracles he had performed, 
uh, here is a delegation of chief priests and teachers. These are the people who are the religious leaders of the nation who should be welcoming Jesus, the Messiah. Instead, they question him, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And uh, when he answers, they're not satisfied with the answers, which then leads in chapter 20, verse 20 and 26, uh, to his discourse over taxes to Caesar, because the most tricky thing was, you know, what do you think about paying taxes to Caesar? And Jesus very wisely answers that question when he says, show me a coin. And then he holds it up and says, whose image is on here? And as he turns that, uh, they have to admit it's Caesar's image. All right. So then give to Caesar what belongs to him. But give to God Almighty what belongs to him. And so they, they can't trick him up. They can't... Uh, get to the point where they can actually uh, accuse him of, of having misspoken in some way. I, I often feel for our politicians, we're in an election right now, and it seems like whenever they open their mouth and say something, somebody is looking for just one slip of the tongue, just something that they could say wrong. And uh, uh, it was no different in this case because they definitely wanted to get rid of him. So. Moving on into chapter 22, you begin uh, that chapter with the uh, agreement on the part of Judas to betray Jesus. And, and this is what we read. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now, the interesting thing is, the Passover was an important Jewish festival, and a lot of preparation had to go into it. Uh, but the fact is that these religious leaders who should be about preparing for the festival, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, instead, they're trying to find ways and means of getting rid of Jesus. Because, you see, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the following activities of Jesus had uh, heightened the awareness of people. Jesus is in town. And, and, of course, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, did not want to acknowledge him as the, as the Messiah. So, therefore, they had to find a way of, of nullifying the impact or, or minimizing the impact, anything to just get rid of him. We don't know why Judas decided to betray him. But the next verse... Verse 3 indicates the gospel writer's perspective on it, saying, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. We don't know for sure whether Judas' idea was, if I force his hand, if I betray him, he will have to then rise up, man up, and declare himself to be the Messiah. Because you see, the, the disciples knew that. Back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus had taken his disciples on this outing to Caesarea Philippi, a beautiful area, uh, gorgeous uh, streams and, and, and green uh, uh, surroundings and, and lots of temples and lots of beautiful uh, sites. It was a favorite holiday place for people in Jesus' day. And in that context with all these other temples to false gods, 
Jesus asked, what do people say I am? And, uh, of course, uh, the disciples responded back saying, well, some, some say you're Elijah, some, some, one of the prophets. And then Jesus questioned, but who do you say I am? And then Peter, on behalf of the disciples, answers, you are the Christ. That means you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, of course, the, you have the interplay with Jesus, Jesus saying, well, you know, you're very fortunate because you didn't figure that out on your own. You, uh, God, the, my Father in heaven, gave you that. And so uh, upon this uh, faith, I will build my church. So they knew that. Judas knew that. He was part of the twelve. And, and yet, he also knew that the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard did not believe that. And so, going on, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed with him to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. The last thing they wanted was this to be an open public arrest. It had to be somewhere secretly. And, and, and Judas agreed to that. Maybe he thought, I can make some money on this. Uh, because we also know that there was some question as to he was the one who carried the purse. And sometimes he may have dipped in to meet his own needs, uh, embezzled some funds that should have been used to, to give to the poor or whatever. We don't know what his motivation was, whether it was to try to force Jesus' hand or whether it was to enrich himself. But at any rate, he agreed to the scheme, but he initiated it. They didn't come to him and ask. He went and offered. You want to get him? I can tell you where he's going to be. I can figure it out. So at this stage, uh, the stage is set for the ultimate betrayal, which then led to Jesus' arrest and his death on the cross against the, uh, the background of all these activities during the week. And so here we find in chapter 22, verse 7, the preparation for the Passover feast because Jesus desired to do that. He said he, uh, the day came for the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Now, at any given time in Jerusalem, you would find people carrying water jugs because, uh, you know, they didn't have uh, running water like you and I enjoy. So they had to go to a well, a safe place, bring water, carry it home. To say if you, you meet a man who carries water would probably be a little misleading or confusing because, you know, what if there's lots of men? But traditionally, it was the women who carried water. You know, remember the story in John chapter 4, the woman at the well? It was usually women who carried the water back to the house. That was considered to be a household chore for the women in the home. And so to have a man carrying a jug, he would stand out. It would be easy to identify him. It was all prearranged. Other people would see this and maybe wonder, why is he carrying water? Is he a widower? Is he by himself? Is he single? You know, they still had to carry water too. But whatever the case, here's the signal. Find this man, follow him to the house where he goes. 
And then when you get there, the idea is, uh, say to the owner of the house, verse 11, the teacher asks, where is the room, the guest room, uh, where we may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, making preparation, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Again, there was preparation involved, but there was also planning involved. And whether Jesus had spoken to this house owner previously at some occasion, uh, we don't know the detail. We only know what is recorded for our learning, and we understand that there was planning, there was uh, activities were carried out according to Jesus' plan. And uh, uh, they don't question this. They, 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 they go, they left, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Now, uh, you may never have seen a, a Seder meal, a, a Passover meal. Actually, this week at uh, Brentview, at, at uh, Wednesday at noon, the, the Encore group has invited uh, uh, Rabbi Goldstein to present that Passover meal. So if you're interested, talk to Grace or myself after the service. Uh, just a, a mention of that in case you're interested in learning more about that. But this is what, what happened, very similar to how it is still being preserved and, and uh, uh, observed these days. What is interesting here in verse 14, when the hour came and Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and again, they reclined because they did not have tables like we have with chairs they most likely leaned on some upholstery. Uh, you know, we have some beautiful pictures of the Last Supper, but they're, they're, they're from a Western perspective, not necessarily how traditionally they actually carried it out. At any rate, um, as they're gathered together, he said to them in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. The idea here is that the Passover was part of the rich pageantry that God had uh, commanded and arranged throughout the Old Testament. Year after year, they would celebrate that in anticipation of what? In anticipation of the coming of a Messiah who would fulfill all of the needs of the nation of Israel, God's people. Now it is being expanded beyond that, to all people who would place their hope and their trust in Jesus, in the Messiah, who now is in front of them. He is right among them. But for the most part, especially the uh, official leadership of the Jewish nation, the spiritual leadership, has not been willing to accept that. And so when he, when he shares this Passover meal, it is the longing of his heart to do it one more time. It was that important. You know, uh, we're moving up towards Easter, and I suspect if I were to ask you, how many of you are expecting company from out of town? It's a time when people gather together. Why? Because it's an important festival, and we, we like to be together for that. We've arranged it with our three sons and their families here in the city. You probably have similar arrangements. And this was the same thing in Israel. They would take these feasts times together and celebrate it together. And so then after taking the cup, uh, he, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink 
again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So for Jesus, this was a pivotal point in which he turns his last Passover meal into the first communion service that he has ordained for us to perpetually observe. And so then he goes on with the rich symbolism of the bread and the cup. When he takes the bread again and he, he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, obviously, when he is taking the bread, which was really not bread like we use it, it's a Jewish flatbread matzah, uh, it's unleavened, so it doesn't rise, it's just flat, okay? Uh, and the cup, which is a, a chalice with, with wine, and as he says, this is my body, this is my blood, his body was still there. His blood was still in his veins. This is a symbolic act which we celebrate every time we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now, different uh, Christian uh, traditions uh, have arisen about it. There are some churches, uh, like Bow Valley Christian Church, they celebrate this every Sunday. Uh, and this is their interpretation of saying, whenever you eat or drink, do it in remembrance of me. And so they feel it should be part of every worship service. Uh, as Baptists, we usually do it once a month. Most churches do it the first Sunday of the month. We have years ago decided to do it the second Sunday of the month, which makes us kind of odd, uh, except for the fact that most holidays, long weekends, fall on the first Sunday. And so every time, people who are away miss out on the Lord's Supper. So the decision at that point was, let's do it on the second Sunday. I don't think it really matters. When I was a brand new pastor, church planting pastor up in Red Lake, Red Lake, Ontario. I worked very closely with a Mennonite group that served among the native people. And they celebrated the Lord's Supper only once a year. What they did was they brought all their workers together to Red Lake where the head office was. And then they would have a weekend affair. And part of that would be jointly celebrating Lord, the Lord's Supper. And uh, uh, I, I don't think there's any prescription that it needs to be monthly or weekly or, or annually or quarterly. But whenever we do it, Jesus says, uh, uh, this is poured out for you. This is in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me. Now, what he said next raised all kinds of questions in the minds of the disciples. Because after using that formula, which introduces the Lord's Supper, he goes on to say, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. One of the gospel writers actually says, is dipping his bread into the wine with me. And then he goes on to say, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. In other words, he, he was aware that this was God's plan, and I'm going to die. This is going to happen just as it is decreed. But woe to that man who betrays me. So even if we work within the permissive 
for the actual will of God, we're still responsible for our attitudes, for our actions, and for what unfolds. And just because we can rationalize, well, somebody had to do it, does not speak Judas free. Now, the, the Christian church has struggled down through history about what happened to Judas after he betrayed Jesus and then he sort of had a sense of repentance and he wanted to give the money back that he received for the 30 pieces of silver and then he ended up committing suicide. And there's been lots of speculation. He was a disciple of Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Had he placed his faith in Jesus? Was this a weak moment? Will we meet Judas in heaven? I don't have the answer, except for the grace of God. God knows, and I have to trust him for that. So think about that. But they began to question among themselves, which of them might be who would do this? And then immediately after that, while they're introspecting and wrestling with who who would have done that, in fact, one of the gospel writers again says, is it I, is it I, is it I? They were, they were questioning themselves even. And the next, very next thing is so human. And then they started arguing who among them would be the most important person in the kingdom. That ha- happened a number of times during Jesus' ministry with his disciples. And then Jesus responds back in verse 25 to 26, let's not miss that point. When he says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Isn't it strange how even in our modern days, whenever the government seeks to do something that will be unpopular, they will spend your tax dollars in order to convince you What they plan to do is good for you. Isn't that the truth? It's always been that way. When kings made decisions that would be unpopular, they always had a way of presenting it in such a way that a large portion of the population would think, yeah, we have to tolerate that because it's good for us. It needs to be that way. So he says, not only do they lord it over their people, but they... uh, somehow convince them that they're being benefactors in the process. Here's the contrast, verse 26. But you, talking to his disciples, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, meaning that the youngest is the one least deserving of honor. And here again, in our modern day, we have turned things upside down. Because uh, uh, in... Jewish custom, and for that matter, in all of the Middle East at that point, and in most places around the world, it was the elders, it was the older people who would receive the honor, and children were last uh, on the last rung of the ladder in terms of being served or, or being taken care of. We've reversed the order. We have elevated the child and the mind of the child to make all of the important decisions in the household. 
Uh, I've, I've seen all kinds of evidences of that where, where little children rule the roost in their home. And uh, you've all gone through uh, uh, times of uh, standing at a, at a, at a smorgasbord or, or, or a banquet, and, and as people go through and file through, the whole line stops because one child on the other end or in the middle of the pack uh, can't make up his or her mind what they want to eat. And so the mother reasons with the child, how about this here, Johnny? How about that? How about that? No, no, no. And, and, and everybody has to wait until this little child makes up his or her mind. Well, Jesus says, you know what? As leaders, as elders, as people who uh, deserve honor by human standards, you need to be like the youngest deserving the least honor, and the one who rules like the one who serves. See, Jesus' model of leadership was servant leadership, which is extremely opposite to how the world honors people. I was part of a, an organization at one point where even the annual raise in the, in the uh, social uh, ladder was the person who already had the highest income received the highest percentage of that high income. And the person at the bottom of the ladder who had the lowest income also got the lowest percentage, which means the, the, uh, you know, the contrast gets bigger and bigger year by year. That's the world's way of looking at it. That's not the Christian way of looking at it because we're to be equals in the sight of God all equally deserving and needing the grace of God, all right? So, uh, so what? As we, as we reflect on this text, uh, uh, quite obviously we notice that everything was well-planned. There was nothing left to chance. Along the way, there was all kinds of careful preparation, and there was highly significant detail and symbolic detail involved in all that they did on that Palm Sunday, uh, rather on that Last Supper, the pa Passover meal. We should expect nothing less, because after all, uh, Jesus did not come to earth by chance. He did not live his life in, in random fashion. He was very conscious throughout his ministry, over and over he would say, uh, I only tell you what the Father has told me. I am here to represent the Father. I am here to represent the kingdom. He was very conscious of his role in this whole thing. Nothing was left to happenstance. Neither should be in our life because even the details of our lives, God is still on his throne. We often sing that song and we need to recognize that he doesn't forget us but he also still controls the universe in which we live and we can trust him to, for the outworking of the details. As I look forward, and I'm counting down, folks, I've got two more Sundays to preach, okay? <laughs> two more Sundays to preach, and then we, we're looking for a new pastor coming in, in May. Uh, and, and even for that, uh, the process we came through, uh, there was careful deliberation along the way, and, and I have every reason to believe that God was in it because there was uh, unity among the search committee, and, and as I think in terms of uh, uh, this period of transition, it's a great time for introspection, just like the disciples asked around the table, is it I, is it I? Who, who would betray Jesus? Uh, Jesus said, someone did. 
uh, someone would. And, and we need to be asking ourselves, okay, where am I personally in my relationship to the church, to God? Uh, how ready am I to be involved in the next phase of whatever God has planned for us? Because we need to be much in prayer for this whole process as we revision, as we rethink uh, our joint ministry for Jesus in this community.